Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. And with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, today's show is going to be in honor of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Her feast day is July 16th, which uh, this year falls on next Friday, and therefore will be before our next show. And there's a lot to be said about Our Lady of Mount Carmel and the Carmelite Order under her guidance, uh, which has a lot to do with the Catholic Church as the fulfillment of Judaism, in fact, because Carmelites consider the Carmelite order to have begun, in fact, about 900 years before Christ. They consider it to have been started by the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, and that he actually began, he started a essentially monastic community, a, a community of, of celibate men dedicated to prayer and mortification and penance and praying for the coming of the Messiah. And then when the Messiah did come, that community was transformed into, I started to say, to Christians, but they it was transformed into Jewish followers of the Messiah, Jews in the church. Now, of course, it's a Christian order, but it has maintained many aspects of its Jewish roots, it's maintained all of its uh, roots in the prophet Elijah, which I'll talk about very briefly. And there have been some extremely notable Carmelites of Jewish extraction. Um, and uh, I think we all know about St. Edith Stein, uh, who is a great saint, who was a Carmelite, who was a Jewish convert. Many of us know a Father Herman Cohen, especially if you've been listening to this show for a while, because he's a great hero of mine. But he's another Jewish convert who became an extremely notable Carmelite. In fact, he reintroduced the Carmelite order in England after it had been suppressed due to the Reformation. And I believe he founded nine Carmelite monasteries in England, a number of which are, of course, still still operating. And But perhaps less commonly known is the fact that St. Teresa of Avila, who of course reformed the Carmelites and established the branch of the Carmelites, now known as OCD or the Discalced Carmelites, was of Jewish extraction. And St. John of the Cross, who was her co-founder, so to speak, of the Discalced Carmelites, was from a uh, Jewish convert family. So there's a lot to be talked about about uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, the Carmelite Order, and the Jewish roots of the Carmelite Order, and the uh, Jewish Catholic fruits of the Carmelite Order, so to speak, the Jews in the Carmelite Order who um, became saints. So let me start at the beginning. As you can tell, this is quite a potpourri. This is quite a stew of a number of different number of different themes and eras and so forth. So I hope I can uh, succeed in making it sufficiently coherent. But 
let's uh, start with the beginning with the prophet Elijah. I think most of us are familiar with this story of the prophet Elijah. He uh, lived about nine centuries before Christ, and he was the greatest prophet in Judaism. He was such a great prophet that it was prophesied that he would announce the coming of the Messiah, that he would return to earth to announce the coming of the Messiah, because, of course, the prophet Elijah was not supposed to have died, but was taken up to heaven alive in a chariot, fiery chariot. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me let me stay during his life. So during his life, he fought diligently with a great deal of zeal for the honor of the one true God, the God of Israel, who we know as the most holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And he, um, the story that uh, begins the Marian roots of the Carmelite order, let's say, the Marian the roots of the Blessed Virgin Mary's uh, prophesied coming in the story of Elijah and in the story of Mount Carmel begins in the life of Elijah right after the um, duel of the prophets in which he beheaded 450 prophets of Baal, prophets of a false god. And then he retreated to his uh, hermitage, to his cave on top of Mount Carmel, after that that battle, that duel, which actually took place only a few miles from um, the top of Mount Carmel. And I will now, with that little introduction, go to the passage in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, crouched down to the earth, and put his head between his knees, I'd better back up and fill in something, which is that there had been a great drought in Israel. I believe it lasted seven years. It resulted in a tremendous famine, of course, because there were no crops. And Elijah was praying to end the drought and the um, absence of rain, to bring on rain. And he had just purified Israel, so to speak by getting rid of the 450 prophets of Baal. So he climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, crouched down to the earth, put his head between his knees, and he directed his servant, quote, climb up, climb up and look out to see. And the servant went up and looked, but reported there is nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, go look again. And the seventh time, the youth reported, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand, rising from the sea. Elijah said, Go and say to Ahab, Harness up and leave the mountain before the rain stops you. In a moment the sky drew drew dark with clouds and wind, and a heavy rain fell. And there was a torrential rain, and that was the end of the drought in Israel and the end of the famine. Now, since the earliest days of the church, uh, as a matter of fact, according to the Carmelites, even before the days of the church, even before the coming of the Messiah, but I'm getting ahead of myself, that tiny cloud that was seen over the sea that Elijah saw that heralded the torrential rain, that small cloud was a symbol and a prophecy of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And um, I know that sounds a little bit a little bit uh, fantastical, 
but let me uh, try to uh, begin the explanation of why that small cloud was understood to be the Blessed Virgin Mary by reading the account of that event in the visions of Anne Catherine Emmerich, uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, um, who was a visionary nun of the 19th century. And she saw this event and she saw it with some spiritual um, details filled in, so to speak, with some spiritual background interwoven with what she saw. So I'll read her account and then I will read the legend that has passed through the centuries within the Carmelite order that explains why this small cloud seen rising over the sea that was going to end the drought in Israel was a picture of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So first going to Anne Catherine Emmerich. This is from uh, the book of her visions, which goes by this published under the title, The Life of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I saw the whole promised land withered and parched with drought, and I saw Elijah ascending Mount Carmel with two servants to beseech God to give rain. First they climbed over a high ridge, then up steps of rock to a terrace, then up many more step rocks, and so reached a great open space with a hill of rocks in the midst of which was a cave. Elijah climbed up steps to the top of this rocky hill, He left his servants at the edge of the open space and bade one of them look toward the Sea of Galilee, which had, however, a terrible aspect, for it was quite dried up and was full of hollows and caverns with rotting bodies of animals in the swampy ground. Elijah crouched down on the ground with his head sunk between his knees and covering himself in his mantle, prayed fervently to God and cried seven times to his servant, to know whether he did not see a cloud rising out of the lake. At his seventh call, I saw the cloud rise up and saw the servant announce it to Elijah, who sent him to King Ahab. I saw a white eddy form itself in the midst of the lake. Out of this eddy rose a little black cloud like a fist, which opened and spread itself out. In this little cloud, I saw from the first a little shining figure like a virgin. I saw too that Elijah perceived this vigor excuse me I saw too that Elijah perceived this figure in the spreading cloud The head of this virgin was encircled with rays she stretched her arms out in the form of a cross and had a triumphal wreath hanging from one hand her long robe seemed to be tied beneath her feet she appeared as if hovering above the whole promised land in the cloud as it spread ever farther I saw how this cloud divided into different parts and fell in eddying showers of crystal dew on certain holy and consecrated places inhabited by devout men and those who were praying for salvation. I saw these showers edged with the colors of the rainbow and the blessing taking shape in their midst like a pearl in a shell. It was explained to me that this was a symbolic figure and that the favored places watered by the showers from the cloud were in fact those which had had their share in contributing to the coming of the Blessed Virgin. I saw as well a prophetic vision of how Elijah, while the cloud was rising, discerned four mysteries relating to the Blessed Virgin. 
Elijah discerned in the cloud, among other things, that Mary would be born in the seventh age of the world, hence his sevenfold call to his servant. He saw, too, from what family she was to come. On one side of the country he saw a low but very broad family tree, and on the other a very high one, broad at the base but tapering toward its top, which bent down to the first tree. He understood all this and discerned in this way four mysteries relating to the future mother of the Savior. Hereupon I had a vision of how Elijah enlarged the cave above which he had prayed, and how he made the sons of the prophets into a more regular organization. Some of these were always praying in this cave for the coming of the Blessed Virgin, and paying her honor in anticipation of her future birth. I saw that this devotion to the Blessed Virgin continued here uninterrupted, that the Essenes carried it on during Mary's earthly life, and that subsequently it was perpetuated up to our time by hermits and the Carmelite order, which eventually succeeded them. Wow. Let me just underline some amazing things here. One is, for from beginning 900 years before the birth of Jesus, the Carmelites, so to speak, Elijah's followers on Mount Carmel, were praying not only for the coming of the Messiah, but they were praying for the coming of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who would be the mother of the Messiah because their founder Elijah had already in this vision seen and been taught about the Blessed Virgin Mary to come. He understood mystically, spiritually, four mysteries that were symbolized or, or presented in this vision of the cloud that emerged from the dry lake and out of which all of the rain that ended the drought and the famine in Israel came. First of all, before I get into the symbolism that Elijah understood, I just want to point out the very obvious symbolism, which is that um, Israel was in a state of drought and famine. It was, in other words, all dried up, dying for lack of water. And the Blessed Virgin Mary, so to speak, came, represented by this cloud, and then Israel was soaked with torrential rain. Here we see a picture of spiritual grace coming from God, coming from God through the Jews to Israel, drying up, so to speak, and then with the coming of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the birth of Christ and the coming of Christianity, that drought turning into an absolute torrential rainfall of more water, more rain, more grace than anyone could have ever expected or hoped or even make use of. So that's obvious just from the the outline of the story. Now, um, the four visions that, um, the four mysteries which Elijah saw in this vision of the cloud, according to the legend of the Carmelite order are as follows. And I don't understand all of these mysteries, by the way, so I am repeating them from the accounts of the Carmelite order's legend, but I'm not repeating them from a perspective of full understanding. Number one, 
A girl child was to be born who would be free from sin in her mother's womb, just as the cloud would rise, sweet and light, from the heavy, bitter sea. So that's the first mystery about the Blessed Virgin Mary that Elijah saw in this vision, or in this image, I should say. The second mystery was that this wonder would occur in the seventh age of the human generations in the genealogy of the promised Redeemer, for the servant went up seven times. The third mystery is that the woman would come and would, the woman who would come would, like Elijah, vow perpetual virginity. And the fourth mystery is that God, joining his divine nature to human nature, would be born of that virgin. The symbol of the Redeemer's coming was plentiful rain that came after the small cloud had spread and filled the heavens and the wind had arisen. The cloud is the Virgin Mary, the wind is the Holy Spirit. The skies were darkened when the power of the Most High overshadowed Mary and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. So the great reign of grace began in the mystery of the virginal conception of the Son of God. So there we have the four mysteries that Elijah understood from seeing this cloud arise out of the dry and bitter sea. Um, you see, I'm going to back up Our Lady of Mount Carmel. We think of Our Lady of Mount Carmel as, of course, any religious order is going to have a devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary and the Blessed Virgin Mary, the devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary in the Carmelite order, we think, well, that's just called Our Lady of Mount Carmel. But we see that there's something much deeper going on here, that Our Lady of Mount Carmel isn't just the devotion to Our Lady in the Carmelite order. She's really Our Lady of Mount Carmel that predates the Carmelite order. The current Carmelite order, the Christian Carmelite order, by nine centuries. She really is Our Lady of Mount Carmel. She's Our Lady of the Carmelite order from its founding by Elijah 900 years before Christ. Anyway, back to the account from the Carmelite order of these mysteries revealed to Elijah. Elijah passed on this prophecy to the school of prophets on Carmel, and their successors guarded it jealously through the centuries until Mary came and Christ was born. Faithful to the command of Elijah, the hermits passed their lives in solitude and penance, praying for the coming of the Messiah and looking ahead to the Virgin through whom the Redeemer would come. Conscious of the fact that the Mother of God would make a vow of perpetual virginity after the example of Elijah, they too made complete and voluntary chastity their ideal. The white cloak they inherited from Elijah was a constant reminder of their dedication to the virgin who was to come, and that the purpose of their whole institute was to prepare for her coming. The characteristic prayer of the Carmelites is longing and readiness for the Savior. So you see, for those 900 years, the Carmelites were praying not just for the coming of the Redeemer, but for the coming of the mother of the Redeemer, whom Elijah had seen in that cloud. I'll continue with the account from the Carmelite order. 
Mary is revealed as an imitator of Elijah, and so the two patronal figures of our order are brought into relationship on the level of the fundamental dynamism of Carmelite life. Within the complex of the transforming values which are symbolized in virginity, love, purity of heart, readiness for the word, total openness to God, service in the church, and so forth. Okay. Okay, I will uh, back up and I'll mention something else. Uh, Some of you know that um, when travel was still open before the current uh, restrictions, I used to bring, take, frequently take pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And we spent the first night of those pilgrimages, whenever possible, where? On top of Mount Carmel, where? In a guest house or a pilgrimage house, which was part of a monastery there, a Carmelite monastery there. What's the name of that monastery? Stella Maris. Where is that monastery? It's on the top of Mount Carmel. Where is it more specifically? It is built over the cave where Elijah lived. And what is the significance of Stella Maris Monastery to the Carmelites? It's the mother house of the entire worldwide Carmelite order. So just think of that picture, that spiritual picture. You have Elijah's cave on the summit of Mount Carmel. Built over that cave, you have a monastery that is the mother house of the Carmelite order for the last thousand years. I don't know when. It had something to do with the Crusades. But for centuries and centuries and centuries, as Elijah's cave was the heart and center and origin of the Carmelite order, it is still the heart and center and origin, so to speak, of the worldwide radiation of the Carmelite order. Okay, so take a breath here. Um, I should interrupt myself to say this is a live call-in program, and the number here is 866-333-6279, which is 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And um, I, in a few minutes, in about five minutes, I'll be taking the short musical break. We usually take about halfway through the program. And if anyone wants to call in with a comment or a question at that point, it's a very graceful time to call during the break, because then coming out of the break, I can check the call screen and see if there are any calls and take the calls um, and then uh, and then go back and continue with the um, you know discussion that I'm uh, having about the Carmelite order, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and what it has to do with to do with the Jews as well, of course, as the Blessed Virgin Mary being at the very center of the entire story, starting with Elijah and running through to today. But continuing with the account that is given in the legend of the Carmelite order, let me turn to that now. Um, The monks at the time of Mary, remember, there were monks on Mount Carmel when Mary was a girl, right? There were monks on Mount Carmel praying for the coming of the Redeemer from 900 years before Christ until 2021. So the monks await the coming of Mary 
the fulfillment of the mysteries revealed to Elijah. About 70 years before the Incarnation, it was revealed to the monks on Carmel that the Redeemer was soon to come. It was revealed to them what family would be the ancestors of his virgin mother, the girl child seen in the vision of the cloud. A young girl by the name of Emeretia visited Mount Carmel with her mother. Um, the monks encouraged the girl to marry a devout man named Stolanus. They had two children, Ismeria, who was to be the mother of Elizabeth, and Anne, the mother of Mary. Emeratia continued the custom of visiting Carmel with her children, which would have been Anne and Esmeria. Anne, in her turn, kept up the tradition when Mary was born, and when Mary was born, Anne brought her to visit the monks on the holy mountain. Okay, so what we see here is the Blessed Virgin Mary's grandmother visited Mount Carmel with her mother, that the monks there knew that she was to uh, be the ancestor of the mother of the Redeemer. They encouraged her to marry a certain devout man. She did. And then she had two children, one of whom was Anne, the mother of Mary. Anne continued the tradition of visiting the monks on Mount Carmel. And then when she had Mary, she continued the tradition of visiting the monks on Mount Carmel with Mary. And when Mary was born, Anne brought her to visit the monks on the holy mountain. Now, it's not that far. It's maybe about, my guess would be, not more than 30 or 40 miles at the most from uh, Nazareth to Mount Carmel. Although it wouldn't be a particularly easy walk because Mount Carmel is needless to say at the top of a hill. Anyway, Saint, and this account that I gave that Anne went with, uh, when Mary was born, went, excuse me, brought her to visit the monks on Mount Carmel was known by St. Teresa of Avila because St. Teresa of Avila makes reference to this story in her foundations, uh, foundations of the uh, uh, Discalced Carmelites. Anyway, in later years, when Mary was living in Nazareth, she would continue to visit the monks, and with her companion virgins, Mary would visit the place where she had been prefigured in the cloud of Elijah. There she would show her motherly affection towards the hermits. Because of the chaste lives they lived in obedience to Elijah, she called them her brothers. She also brought the Christ child to visit Carmel. With joy and pride, the monks served Mary, recognizing in her the one prophesied to Elijah and so long desired in their prayers. They found a wonderful likeness between themselves and Mary in the practice of voluntary virginity and even in those days called Mary their sister. These were the religious men in Acts 2 who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and under the influence of Mary were baptized by the apostles. Um, anyway, uh, maybe I will, um, uh, let me see if there, what more in this, uh, le in this account from the Carmelites I should. Okay, so after that, the monks, now Christians, lived the Christian life, faithful to the teaching of the apostles and to the breaking of bread, 
With one accord they persevered in prayer every day in the temple, praising God in joy and simplicity of heart. That's that's a, a quote from Acts 2. They continue to meditate on the scriptures, but they now find a hidden spiritual meaning in the Old Testament books, which they studied in allegorical interpretation. Many preach Christ in the surrounding area. They left their long-desired solitude due to God's call. That's very interesting. Remember, they were contemplative. They were contemplatives. And then with the coming of Christianity, preaching the gospel, spreading the news of Christ, became more important than praying for the coming of Christ. And they forced themselves to leave their life of strict solitude in order to, to some extent, become missionaries. And thus ends the history of the order as given in the Institutio, which must be the um, institutions of the Carmelite order, in, like in the constitutions. So, with that, we have come to the halfway point in our program. And I have a special treat, which is a hymn. And um, it's... Um, a hymn to the flower of Mount Carmel, to the Blessed Virgin Mary. It is in Latin, so um, all I can do is is um, play it, and um, afterwards I'll try to uh, try to give a, a translation of it. So let's listen to the hymn now. Los carmelitis Carmelidomina, 
I know we have a caller, and I'm going to ask the caller's patience and forbearance, because since we just heard that beautiful hymn, and I'm not sure all of us remember our Latin well enough to understand what they were singing, and it's such a beautiful prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Allow me to read the lyrics in English before I uh, turn to the call. Flower of Carmel, tall vine, let blossom laden, Splendor of heaven, child-bearing yet maiden, none equals thee. Mother so tender, who no man did know, on Carmel's children thy favors bestow, star of the sea. Strong stem of Jesse, who bore one bright flower, be ever near us and guard us each hour who serve thee here. Purest of lilies that flowers among thorns, Bring help to the true heart that in weakness turns and trusts in thee. Strongest of armor, we trust in thy might. Under thy mantle, hard-pressed in the fight, we call to thee. Our way uncertain, surrounded by foes, unfailing counsel you give to those who turn to thee. O gentle mother, who in Carmel reigns, share with your servants that gladness you gained and now enjoy. Hail, gate of heaven! With glory now crowned, bring us to safety where thy Son is found. True joy to see. Amen. And with that, perhaps we can turn to the call. Are you still there, caller? Yes. Well, uh, did you have a comment or a question? I have a question. I went to Israel, and on the first day, we went north from Tel Aviv parallel to the Mediterranean. And just as we were approaching Mount Carmel, we detoured to the right down towards the Jezreel Valley. And I saw a group of hills or mountains, and they said, well, those are all Mount Carmel, a part of a mountain range. I never did see the monastery that you were talking about, because I've always wondered, the Mediterranean side, or was it a... Okay, sure. Um, let me just ask you uh, very briefly. Um, when you turned off, why did you... Where were you going? You were probably going to the Sea of Galilee when you turned off to cross the Jezreel Valley? We were going to uh, Nazareth Yeah. first. Yeah, going to Galilee. That makes sense, actually, geographically. I, I just wanted to put it yeah. together in my head. Uh, sure, thanks for the question. And the answer is very simple. The um, Mount Carmel, in that sense, is like, uh, oh, think of it as the a, a turned-over hull of a ship. In other words, it's like a spine. And um, so it's, it's more like yeah. a ridge than it is like a cone. And... Uh, as you go from the south to the north, 
um, it's like <laughs> it's a hard it's a hard picture to draw, I guess. But it's like a, it's like the hull of an upside down ship that tilts up as you go north. So you know it's got a west side and east side. It doesn't have really a north side and a south side because it just kind of like climbs as a ridge until it gets to the um, actually it gets to the Mediterranean Sea in Haifa, and then it's got a very sharp drop off. And the monastery and the peak of Mount Carmel and Elijah's cave and where the monks had their community is at that tip of the of the upside down ship hull or whatever, which is um, the northern so end can, of it. So you can see the Mediterranean. Oh, boy, can you ever you can see it um, around uh, 180 degrees. In other words, you can see it to the west, wow. and you can see it to the north, and you can see it to the northeast. You can actually see um, Lebanon uh, as you look oh. um, northeast, and you can look also straight west. It's, it's very dramatic. And um, the reason I always start my pilgrimages there is because, um, well, it's because it's the start of everything in a sense. And um, my pilgrimages are have a, a kind of a... Jewish roots transitioning into the Catholic Church flavor to them, and what better place to kind of illustrate that than than there and to stay to stay over Elijah's cave, inside what is still a working Carmelite monastery, just a perfect picture. So anyway, but thanks for the question. Yeah. And right um, at the bottom is right at the bottom is Haifa. Also, you said no, not at the bottom. Actually, it's uh, how can I put it? Um, uh, how can I put it? So the, the, the northern tip of this mountain ridge, so to speak, drops precipitously and it drops into, yeah. it, in some sense, it drops into the Mediterranean and, uh, on, on the sea level is the town of Haifa. It's a port. Haifa is okay. a very large port. Thank you. Sure. Um, Okay, thank you for that call, and um, I guess I'll get back to the um, back to the story of um, Our Lady of Mount Carmel and Elijah, and um, I'm going to have to uh, skip a lot. That's always very painful. Uh, let me. Um, okay, uh, Father Herman Cohen. I don't have the time to give his witness testimony. Um, I have talked about him on other shows. Uh, but I did want to read what he wrote. He was, he was Jewish. He's actually a, a Jewish atheist. He was very depraved. He was a musician, but he had a miraculous conversion in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and he became a, not only a passionate Catholic, but he became a Carmelite monk. And he wrote his mother explaining why he joined the Carmelite order. And, um... That is the the quote that I am furiously flipping around looking for. So um, here it is. Okay. Um, this so this is what he wrote to his mother about why he became a Carmelite. The religious order I have entered originated among the Jews nine hundred and thirty years before Jesus Christ. The prophet Elijah of the Old Testament founded it on Mount Carmel in Palestine. It is an order of real Jews 
of children of the prophets who waited for the Messiah, who believed in him when he came. They have survived to our time, living in the same manner, with the same bodily deprivations and the same spiritual joys that were there 2,800 years ago. They still bear today the name of the Order of Mount Carmel. Why follow this life? To imitate the life Jesus led when he came to save men through suffering, obedience, humiliations, poverty, the cross. This is the life I have chosen. Now, not only did the Carmelite Order have its roots in Judaism, but um, there has been this, I would argue, mystical connection with Jews and Judaism throughout the history of the Carmelite Order. And as I said, the um, uh, uh, what's the word? The 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 founders of the Discalced Carmelites, the renewers of the order, Saint John of the Cross and Saint Teresa of Avila, both were said to have come from Jewish converso families. Converso refers to the Jews in the Iberian Peninsula who entered the Catholic Church uh, primarily in the 14th and 15th centuries. There was a huge number, a huge flood of Jews into the Catholic Church. Uh, a lot of it was a genuine conversion, and some significant part of it was fake conversion was done because of uh, political and, never mind political, actual persecution of the Jews so that life became very difficult for them and at one point they were actually expelled from uh, both Portugal and Spain if they remained Jewish. So there was also a lot of forced or semi-forced conversion, pressured conversion let's say, but there was also a lot of genuine conversion and we know for a fact that Saint Teresa of Avila's grandfather was a Jewish man who became Catholic, and he was not a fake convert, he was a genuine convert. And we know that because he was tried by the Inquisition. <laughs> he was tried, he was accused of being a fake convert, and he passed the test by the Inquisition. And um, we know that from physical documentation, from both the records of the Inquisition itself, which have been kept and also from a 16th century lawsuit that was recently discovered, actually, in archives um, that uh, mentions the, the fact. So the case of St. Teresa of Avila being of Jewish extraction, let's say, is incontestable. John of the Cross, it's the commonly uh, understood that he was of Jewish extraction, but to my knowledge... There is no physical documentation, uh, but it's said that he was from a Jewish converso family. And in fact, his family, his, his father and grandfather and, and uncles and so forth, were silk merchants, which is also very consistent with it having been a Jewish converso family. And, and supposedly, at the time of his grandparents, the family uh, converted to Catholicism. So there you have the two almost re-founders of the Carmelite order who are Jewish. And um, 
the uh, where should I go from there? Let's see. I would say the um, uh, well, I can go to a very pleasant place, which of course is Saint um, Edelstein, Saint Teresa of Avila, who was. Um, there's nothing contestable about the fact that she was from a Jewish family. She obviously was from a Jewish family. And let me read some beautiful quotes from her that reflect this, um, the relationship that she felt, let's say, between her role as a Carmelite and her Jewish roots. Um, so I'm just going to go through a series of, of quotes of St. Teresa, uh, excuse me, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, uh, St. Dieter Stein. I spoke with the Savior to tell him that I realized it was his cross that was now being laid upon the Jewish people, that the few who understood this had the responsibility of carrying it in the name of all, and that I myself was willing to do this if he would only show me how. I left the service with the inner conviction that I had been heard, but uncertain as ever as to what carrying the cross would mean for me. Um, let me ex explain this. this. is a very, very beautiful, and it's also, uh, frankly, quite deep, that St. Edelstein understood that the sacrifice that was being laid upon the Jewish people by the Holocaust was a sacrifice which was to be united with the sacrifice of Christ for its redemptive value. However, the Jews who were being exterminated did not know enough or understand enough to consciously unite the Holocaust with the sacrifice of Christ. So, as St. Dieter Stein said, I realized it was his cross that was now being laid upon the Jewish people, that the few who understood this had the responsibility of carrying it in the name of all. In other words, the picture is that St. Edelstein, as a Jewess who was a Catholic, and as a Carmelite, as a member of the order which bridged Judaism and the Catholic Church, she could fulfill this role of uniting the suffering of the Jews in the Holocaust with the suffering of Christ on the cross through her shared participation as both a Jew and a Catholic and as both, you could almost say, as a Jewish contemplative in the order of Elijah and a Catholic contemplative in the order of Carmel. So she was bundling together, so to speak, the suffering of all of the Jews in the Holocaust and bringing it to the cross of Christ, uniting it with the suffering of Christ. And in that light, it is probably very significant that the train that the, the, the train that took Edelstein to Auschwitz, the train car was composed a hundred percent of Jewish Catholics. She was in a train car of, I don't remember the number, some number of Jewish Catholics who had been rounded up in Holland and sent to the extermination camp together in retribution, in fact, for what the Catholic bishops had 
said that antagonized the Nazi authorities. That's another story for another day. So she was in this train car composed entirely of Jewish Catholics. That train car pulled up at Birkenau. There were several camps within Auschwitz, and Birkenau was a pure extermination camp that had no lodging. The the um, the prisoners who got off the train at Birkenau went straight to the extermination chambers. They did not pass go and collect $200. They did not go to barracks first and um, only go through cycles of being exterminated over the next few weeks. They did not they did not sleep there, basically. They were exterminated immediately upon arrival. And so St. Edith Stein was sent to the extermination chamber with a trainload of Jewish Catholics. So you can see that image again of, of the uniting somehow mystically the suffering of the Jewish victims of the Holocaust with the cross of Christ in that picture of this trainload of Jewish Catholics simultaneously being put into the extermination chamber. Back to St. Dieter Stein. Another quote of hers. This is the shadow of the cross that falls upon my people. Oh, if they would only realize that it is... Anyway, if oh, if they would only realize. Um, and then again, I understood the cross as the destiny of God's people, which was beginning to be apparent at the time. I felt that those who understood the cross of Christ should take it upon themselves on everybody's behalf. Beneath the cross, I understood the destiny of God's people. Um, and then she wrote A Spiritual Last Will and Testament in 1939, in which she wrote the following, I joyfully accept in advance the death God has appointed for me in perfect submission to his most holy will. May the Lord accept my life and death for the honor and glory of his name, for the needs of his holy church, for the Carmels of Cologne and Act, for the final perfecting of our holy order, and for the Jewish people, that the Lord may be received by his own and his kingdom come in glory. So she consciously offered her life for the sanctification of the Carmelite order, and for the conversion of the Jewish people. And she ties together, by the way, the conversion of the Jewish people with the second coming, because she says, for the Jewish people, that the Lord may be received by his own, and his con kingdom come in glory. Because, of course, St. Dieter Stein knew full well the Catholic teaching that the Lord cannot return, he cannot come in glory, until the conversion of the Jewish people as paragraph 674 of the New Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, The glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel, which is a darn good reason to pray for the conversion of the Jews. And since that is my hidden agenda uh, for doing this show, in fact, is in large part, to inspire prayer for the conversion of the Jews. And since we have come to the end of our hour, rather tragically, 
let me read a prayer, pray a prayer for the conversion of the Jews. I invite you to pray along. Uh, obviously, it will be praying with your heart rather than with the words. Um, it is a entirely church-approved prayer. It's from the First Vatican Council in 1868. Uh, it was endorsed by the Pope of the Council, who is, uh, I believe, Pope St. Pius IX now. And it was heartily endorsed by the Council Fathers. And the prayer was written, by the way, by two Jewish Catholic convert priests. So let me read it and pray it. And that, with that, I'm going to be going out, uh, signing off the show afterwards. The undersigned fathers of the council humbly yet urgently, beseechingly pray that the Holy Ecumenical Council of the Vatican come to the aid of the unfortunate nation of Israel with an entirely paternal invitation that, finally exhausted by a weight no less futile than long, the Israelites hasten to recognize the Messiah, our Savior Jesus Christ, truly promised to Abraham and announced by Moses, thus completing and crowning, not changing, the religion of Moses. The undersigned fathers have the very firm confidence that the Holy Council will have compassion on the Israelites, because they are always very dear to God on account of their fathers, and because it is from them that the Christ was born according to the flesh. Would that they then speedily acclaim the Christ, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would that they hurl themselves into the arms of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, even now their sister, according to the flesh, who wishes likewise to be their mother according to grace, as she is ours. Amen. Blessed Virgin Mary, Flower of Carmel, Pray for us, pray for all of us, pray for the Carmelite order, and pray for the conversion of your brothers and sisters, the Jews. Amen. And with that, I will return and um, say goodbye. And I will uh, play as we go out. I will play the um, Flower of Carmel that I was playing before. And I... It's time to say goodbye. I hope you join us again next week. Same time, same place. You've been listening to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism with uh, me, your host, Roy Showman. And um, come back next week. Oh,
Let them go, I'm replenished. 